Hello everyone, my name is Joshua S. Johnson of visualfreelancer.com. Today I would like to talk to you about one of my favorite programs of all time, Doctor Who. My first exposure to Doctor Who, I was the ripe old age of three years old, and my first memories of it were the blinking, flashing lights in the console room, and especially the center rotor going up and down, as well as the roundels and the noise of the TARDIS interior. I was exposed, like many people in North America, during the Tom Baker era, and have a lot to say. Doctor Who, when it came to North America in the mid-70s, had already a history of 13 or more years after being released um, November of 1963, and then being picked up on PBS uh, in the 1970s, and then reaching its heightened popularity in the US throughout the 1980s and the early 1990s. It was distributed all over the United States through public broadcasting. So the US taxpayer and donations to public broadcasting stations made sure that we were getting our weekly fill of the obscure British television program. The US audience is one of the most important keys for the Doctor Who franchise and one of the biggest audience base, particularly because of how we were exposed to the show. With the PBS stations being able to show different eras and different parts of Doctor Who in publicly funded syndication in areas from Tacoma all the way to Louisiana, uh, this gave an exposure to the show to audiences on a free channel that you could pick up on either um, the regular uh, broadcast cable broadcast stations for free or at the very least you could run and find a UHF antenna and hook in to look at a public broadcast of Doctor Who. It was unique in that respect because in different parts of the country different eras of the the show was being presented and all of it was under the umbrella of just one science fiction show so the continuity of Doctor Who for North American audiences when we were first exposed to it had already had a history uh, for us to try to unravel and discover or try to hunt down any type of media hints and clues to what the time before our exposure was to the show, but also to look forward to what was going to be coming out in the Doctor Who program. In North America in 1970s, 1980s, um, up until 1986, having a continuous science fiction character weekly was unique. And the shows that did present these things previously didn't last as long. For example, um, the major franchise that came out of, of science fiction television was Star Trek, uh, the original series, 1966 through 1969. Only three years that show had, but it made such an impact on audiences and syndication that it inspired a film franchise and then spin-offs. So with Doctor Who, though, what you had when it introduced itself to North American audiences there was 13 or more years to catch up on with the program. Three doctors before Tom Baker to get to know, and then, at the same time, 
new stuff, uh, well, new to the United States stuff coming out and being released on PBS. However, because of the scattered audience bases, because it was going out on public broadcasting, because there was not central marketing towards the United States for Doctor Who in the 1980s, there was really no way for BBC executives to see that the property that they were starting to neglect, the property that they were starting to smother, and the property that they were trying to get rid of and take it off the air, had been hitting a fever pitch. We were starting to really enjoy it. We wanted more. We were hungry. We wanted the merchandise. We wanted Dalek toys. But none were available. To go to a mall and see one Doctor Who item or a few Doctor Who books in the 1980s, like the Doctor Who Technical Manual or eventually the 25th anniversary book showing a Doctor I hadn't even seen on television yet. These were exciting to young Whovians because unlike Star Wars or Star Trek or um, even in some small way Battlestar, we didn't have the merchandising or the broadcast schedule of of the program itself. So all of the information that we got, all of the shows that we were watching, were coming in sometimes a few years after they were being broadcast. So by the time Doctor Who had been canceled, there were many American audience members that were still on the Peter Davidson storyline and had not even seen Colin Baker as the Doctor by the time the overall show was entirely canceled. The hiatus of Doctor Who and the cancellation didn't impact North American viewers because even after the show was canceled, we were still getting what we considered new episodes in all the way up until the early 90s, 1992. So from American viewers' uh, perspective, Doctor Who never really went away. And even when it did, there was still so much mystery of that program to unravel from the eras that weren't commonly broadcast on PBS, the Hartnell and Patrick Troughton era, to catch up to the storyline, to catch up to the intricacies of the character, to catch up with the contrast, to catch up with when the main bad guys started to show up. Being a fan of Doctor Who in the 1980s, and starting to watch the story arcs between um, Tom Baker with the the East Space and the Keys of Time, and then the regeneration arc into Peter Davidson, and then going through the Peter Davidson episodes. These took years to do, and uh, these would also be heightened with PBS starting to air um, seasons and such out of order. So one week you could be tuning in to Peter Davidson, and then the next week it would roll all the way back to the three doctors. And so you'd have all of that Pertwee and Baker and Davidson to wait for to get to the other Baker. Even though we had seen images of Colin Baker as the doctor on Doctor Who magazine or on the covers of different books um, or on a calendar. Our exposure to the character and the episodes hadn't happened, hadn't occurred yet, and the series in the UK was already shut down. For North American audiences that were watching on PBS, Doctor Who never ended. We kept getting the episodes little bit by little bit weekly. 
we were still continuing on the story arcs. A lot of PBS stations, when they ran out of um, the tapes, they would start all the way over um, to what they did have. And so it was not uncommon for at least one station I know of to hit the caves of Androzani and then the next week play an episode of the John Pertwee era. So leaving leaving a young fan having to wait a couple of years until being able to see anything involving the Colin Baker performance as the Sixth Doctor or Sylvester McCoy's performance as the Seventh Doctor. From the time of the cancellation of classic Doctor Who in the UK to the point where North America had started seeing Colin Baker and Sylvester McCoy episodes and the the end of the classic series. Not a lot of time uh, had really passed before Fox had picked up the movie. The BBC during the 70s and 80s entirely ignored an American audience base. And the reason they did is because there was no way that they could broadcast Doctor Who over here other than PBS. It wasn't something that would wind up on NBC or Paramount, not with the way that it was produced in its state. Um, the big science fiction shows of in the U.S. in 1987, Star Trek The Next Generation. And that dominated and ruled the closing out of the 80s and into the early 90s. So when compared to in 1987, when Doctor Who was very popular for U.S. audiences and had been so for almost a decade in some cases, um, when Star Trek The Next Generation had come out, the production values of that TV show were something that you didn't typically see in a 1970s Doctor Who episode. And with North American viewers, we hadn't seen 1987 Doctor Who episodes by the time The Next Generation had even come out. We were still in 1983, 1984 in terms of the storyline. So being able to compare Doctor Who in terms of production quality and values on television with United States television, uh, U.S. television like Star Trek, uh, The Next Generation, you will find a discrepancy in production value because when the BBC had all the content for Doctor Who that had ever been released for the classic series, they were only on what, third season, second season of The Next Generation when Doctor Who was cancelled in the UK. So these type of factors, these type of factors lead to the discrepancy of production values that you can see across the board between US sci-fi franchise like TNG or the UK franchise of Doctor Who, of classic Doctor Who. So BBC executives and the decision makers ignoring the North American audience because they had no way to actually cash in at the time on broadcasting Doctor Who to a North American audience uh, the, the same day um, without any type of affiliation with an American network limited the um, income potential for the franchise and also limited merchandising and interest in the program for a mainstream entertainment venue. As a uh, young teenager when I heard about and read about the Doctor Who movie from the 1960s Doctor Who and the Daleks with Peter Cushing, who I knew as Grand Moff Tarkin and other characters through the Hammer Horror films. That excited me. 
I took a bus two towns over to go to this little bitty video store called Tumwater Video and I had it in my hands a VHS copy and I went home and after a few hours of, of being on a bus got back to uh, my house and put it in and, and watched it and just absolutely was blown away by seeing a human version of the doctor and seeing the roles of Ian and Barbara and Susan somewhat rearranged a little bit to where Barbara was actually Susan's sister and Ian was young and not a school teacher and dating Barbara. So the characterizations were different and the color, uh, the, the 60s, way the 60s were able to bring out the variations in color of the Daleks by the time um, American audiences had been exposed to the Daleks from the Pertwee era and the Baker era and the Davidson era they had lost a lot of their colorful flash. There was a lot of steel gray dark tones when it came to Daleks um, or metallic. Not bright red, bright blue. These, these were not colors that were associated with the Daleks um, to US audiences. So seeing the movie and the film version and the, and on VHS that had been released in, in the 1960s that I had seen in the early 1990s was just an amazing um, revelation in design and also to see what the um, the take on a human based console room would be something that would be based in more of a backyard uh, scientist laboratory tinkering with a time machine than an ancient race from the planet Gallifrey in all of the mythos of Doctor Who I will say for the television doctors all of them I like all of them I cannot have a favorite of any of the television doctors but I can say that if I had a favorite person who has been and played the role of the Doctor, it would be Peter Cushing in the two movies. Because when I watched it, I didn't see Peter Cushing at all. I saw an old, absent-minded, sweet scientist who was out for a little mischief and adventure, and it shined through the performance, even though it really had nothing to do with the Doctor Who universe that I had become accustomed to on television. Doctor Who, for US audiences, as a mythos, as a continuing mythos, something that when we were exposed to it, there was already over 10 years of stories behind us, and there were stories that were on their way. And with the longevity of Tom Baker as the Doctor, giving the series eight years, eight years of one person as the lead role is actually longer than most science fiction series last in the United States. The only exception that I am aware of is Stargate SG-1 lasting for 10 years as opposed to the usual seven for science fiction television. Doctor Who, having one person act as the lead character for eight years, was able to make a science fiction show so very popular but give it this continuity in broadcast that by the time Tom Baker had turned into Peter Davidson the show itself, the concept itself, the character of the TARDIS itself, the character of the Doctor himself were all firmly established into the psyche of the American audiences so the transition to Peter Davidson or watching earlier episodes with John Pertwee when they were broadcast was very natural. The reason that Fox was important as the broadcast medium 
for the Doctor Who movie TV movie was also reflective of sort of the audience that was drawn to Fox at the time. Shows like The Simpsons had pretty much defined that channel. Um, Married with Children was, was another one. So it had already had a great deal of popular programming that it had presented and also showed a lot of their executives uh, then had a bit of an open mindset about what type of content audiences would enjoy. So after, from what I understand, many years of one man's personal struggle to bring Doctor Who to U.S. television, that was a, a gentleman by the name of Philip Segal, I believe, he was able to find the interest in the property itself that had been lost to U.K. audiences. He was able to say, hello, America, again, and because he knew, like a lot of fans in North America did, that if you give it to us, if you show us Doctor Who, We'll watch the we'll watch it, and then it can also bring in a lot more fans to the franchise. So when the '96 movie came out, and it was supposed to be a pilot of a show um, of a new Doctor Who show, during the time that they were developing the Doctor Who movie, the history of the character they were going to start to get into, and it was a history that didn't really seem to match the all-Gallifreyan Time Lord that had been inhabiting small screens for, at uh, that point, ooh, 30 years, 32 years. It was a story that they were going to start where the Doctor is actually looking for his dad, a gentleman by the name of Ulysses. Okay, strange, right? I know. I Ulysses. So, Ulysses S. Grant. No. So, the plot line of having the doctor leaving looking for his dad in this sort of epic Odysseus type of way uh, really didn't seem to match him too well and luckily in the TV movie which was supposed to be a pilot they had only hinted at what they were going to be getting to saying the doctor was half human was was one aspect that was supposed to feed later on into this very strange um, storyline where the doctor and his grandpappy Barusa who everybody knows, Barusa was the jerk president of the Time Lords who decided to get put in stone for all eternity in the Five Doctors. Um, I mean, these type of contradictions would have been catastrophic to core audiences had they gone forward. So having a TV movie one night only, being able to almost have a foreshadowing of elements that you would see in the 2005 series, but having a uh, sort of a wrapping up of the classic series storylines to include a doctor versus master Dukeru, as you'd seen in Survival, the last episode of the classic series, to be revived as Eric Roberts. Um, again, a body being inhabited by a undead uh, soul of the master. These types of elements were awesome, and they were presented so quickly, and they were presented. Uh, and one night, that that was it. In 2005, after many years off, off the small screen, Doctor Who returned. And it returned with a lesson that it had learned throughout its disappearance from visual media. To have them be able to broadcast Doctor Who on BBC America has given the BBC 
that direct connection to American audiences that was lacking in the 1980s. Something that if there was a BBC America being broadcast out with Doctor Who being on television the night it was broadcast in 1984, the show would have continued throughout the 1990s. It would have gone uninterrupted. But now with the revival of the 2005 series and the popularity of the show with the audience, which is awesome, they're able to connect directly with those audiences that were once sort of regionalized and only able to get their fix through PBS. Going right to BBC America or plugging in through Netflix or being able to order the DVDs from Netflix or direct order the seasons on DVD or Blu-ray, this gives Doctor Who what it deserves. This gives the franchise what it deserves. The fantastical elements, the action of it, the comedy of it, the absurdity of it, the strange aliens. I mean, you're talking about a franchise that dealt with an all-candy creature at one point. There's really not a lot of things that you can do with Doctor Who that would take it to the too absurd area and arena of science fiction. Another example of production teams who have been doing an amazing job and keeping really good with the old franchise and, and really respecting the old franchise and the work that people had done before. Moffat, Stephen Moffat, and his connecting the new Doctor Who universe with the old storylines I think is absolutely beautiful. The Doctor's Wife was broadcast just a couple of years ago, but with the writers and production staff, they were able to complete a story arc started in the 1960s with The Edge of Destruction. The Edge of Destruction was an amazing little little episode of Doctor Who in the William Hartnell era, and it took place entirely on board the TARDIS, which was unusual. Usually they were out running around London or an alien planet or some type of Dalek compound, but in The Edge of Destruction, they were all confined on board the TARDIS. TARDIS was the, the centerpiece and location. I read the book when I was nine, or eight, and we got it at a mall in Alexandria, Louisiana, <clears throat> and I was so excited to actually have some exposure to the original Doctor uh, that I'd only seen in the three Doctors very briefly, in you know, behind a piece of glass on a television screen being viewed from a couch is not really the best way to see the epicenter of the character, the first actor. But when reading The Edge of Destruction for the first time and being able to see kind of a, um, a hint of who this first person, uh, the first character of the Doctor, the first version of the Doctor acted, and how these companions were all combined, like Ian and Barbara and Susan. These are my first exposures to these characters as well. And this was in the 1980s, reading, reading a paperback novel. To see finally these events on the screen, like reading the edge of destruction, the edge of destruction, and then seeing it eventually on um, on screen, showed the very first time that the TARDIS, which was already a character, was already the ship, the TARDIS actually had a mind of its own, and it was hinted at and shown in the edge of destruction, where the TARDIS prevented all the characters from being plunged into the formation of a solar system and their eventual doom, the TARDIS had actually warned them 
um, to to get away from that event. And later in the show, and later and throughout all of the different eras, it was always hinted here and there that the TARDIS was in fact sentient. It was a conscious being. Well, then in the Doctor's life, they gave it a personality. And they showed, without any story doubt, without any hints, without anything, that in fact the story that was started in The Edge of Destruction was confirmed. In 2005, in the revamped series, they're able to still connect the Doctor to these classic elements of the show. I mean, through Unit and through Sarah Jane Smith and through um, even the continuation of certain bad guys. Being able to give it that type of respectful continuation while adding new elements, constantly adding new elements, is an amazing reflection on how much the production staff, they have a love for the franchise. They have a love for the show. They have a love for the characters. They're not just filling a mold. They're not just trying to to go and and putter on. They're trying to stretch the limits. They're trying to expand the story out. And that feels awesome to a longtime fan. Um, you know, as a kid, Doctor Who, well, it um, it felt unique to me. It felt great to a kid who had to learn to get used to another place every few years. And then finally, as I, you know, grew up, um, it gave me a bunch of fiction and um, so many, so many visual production and visual effects lessons and um, representation of, of eras of television that it's one amazing, consistent study of a franchise and it is a beautiful franchise and it is a beautiful storyline um, Doctor Who <clears throat> has always been one of my absolute favorite science fiction programs thank you for listening everyone that has been my podcast recorded April 1st 2013 Doctor Who Geek number one have a great day